Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the resounding 57% to 43% defeat of a Republican power grab in Ohio to block an anti-abortion referendum that is bound to win, as others have recently in Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, California, and Vermont. Joining us is Carol Sanger, Professor of Law at Columbia University Law School, who is an award-winning teacher and influential scholar of reproductive rights, who writes and teaches courses on contracts, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. Her most recent book, About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century, addresses the regulation of abortion and maternal conduct, surrogacy, and the law's relation to culture. We'll discuss how the overturning of Roe by the Supreme Court appears to be motivating Democratic voters as well as Republicans and independents to show up in huge numbers and vote, even if Republican lawmakers are trying to make it harder for them to do so. Then we'll explore what can be done to reverse the collision course towards war that many see the US and China on and explore what genuine peace efforts can be taken, unlike recent revelations in the New York Times that American peace groups like Code Pink appeared to be shilling for the Chinese Communist Party. Joining us is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and the Next Generation of China's Leaders, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a Novel of Exile. Then finally, we'll examine the Chinese government's global influence campaigns and speak with Joshua Kalanzik, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, who was previously a visiting scholar at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace. He is currently focused on China's relations with Southeast Asia and China's approach to soft and sharp power, including state-backed media and information efforts and other components of soft and sharp power. He's the author most recently of Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. And joining us now is Carol Sanger, Professor of Law at Columbia University. She is an award-winning teacher and influential scholar of reproductive rights who writes and teaches courses on contracts, family law, the legal profession, and the law and law and gender. Her most recent book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century, which addresses the regulation of abortion and maternal conduct, surrogacy, and the law's relation to culture. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Sanger. Thank you. So, Carol, it would seem in terms of the the overturning of Roe v. Wade, its relations, the Dobbs decision's relation to the culture, has actually created a massive uh, backlash, has it not? I mean, across the country, and particularly yesterday in Ohio. Yes, it, it seems that way, and there was some indication that that might happen because the voters in both Kansas and Kentucky had done the same thing a few months ago, which are which which came as a hard. I mean, people had worked hard for that result, but it was still something of a surprise. But the Ohio, Ohio, that was a was a was a surprise and a and a and a very good harbinger. Well, it was of course issue one was championed by the Ohio Republican legislature, which is heavily gerrymandered. And its Secretary of State 
its chief election official, Frank LaRose, championed it. And LaRose, in campaigning, said that issue one was about protecting the Ohio Constitution from outside money interests. But what he didn't say was that uh, issue one (laughs) was financed by outside money interests in the form of a right-wing billionaire from uh, Illinois, Richard Uline. Well, it's quite amazing that that's the cry. You know, this is this is upholding Ohioans and and their integrity as as voters. I mean, that's why we can't have referendum because it's all you know uh, uh, f- finance outside the state. But it's all finance outside the state. I mean, this has been the case in a number of other in Mississippi, for example. They had a personhood amendment, and it became an issue because uh, the the um, anti-abortion people said, well, th- w- people aren't even voting in their own minds. They're just getting told by people outside the state, you know, what, what they should think. But the, the vote was quite strong that the voters did not want a personhood amendment on the, in the Mississippi Constitution. And so it, the money part cancels each other out, I think. And what we have is some, the referendum are are tricky because there are arguments for and against having referenda or initiatives as they're called in some in some states but they are they are meant to be and to increase voter participation and more than that to increase voting voting in a democratic fashion so sometimes these are called direct referenda are called direct democracy you don't like what your legislature's doing Put it on the ballot yourself, folks. Get the number, get petitions signed, and you can have, you can make your own laws, uh, not taking it, not not getting it just from the legislature, or from a governor who has um, veto power. So the idea is it's spreading, spreading democracy, not uh, curtailing it. Well, indeed, but we have, of course, that initiative process out here in California. Uh, mm, we've had yes. it for some time, and it's actually ended up being somewhat abused and replaces yes. the legislatures where so much of the important decisions are just passed off in, into referenda, and massive amounts of money are spent pro and con. And it's quite often being the results have quite often essentially been bought by who has the most money. So mm-hmm. there's a downside to it as well. I mean, it is well, direct democracy. Well, it is. Direct democracy puts the most cheerful spin on what it is, and and there certainly is the other side to tell. I suppose I'm I'm saying I'm deciding that this week it's okay, even though the process may have be faulty, and we can see that it's not the purest form of democracy um, uh, with outside money and other aspects that that I'll say something about, but. Right this this week, I'm deciding to be perfectly happy that the voters of Ohio decided when this was really not an abstract vote on do we think uh, referenda are good, but rather are we going to let the state block all access to abortion? I mean, we have two issues here: one, the abstract one on referendum, and then we have the uh, the, the 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 one that motivated this referendum, which was. Uh, whether or not the state the state legislature could further block access following Dobbs, the Dobbs case of last year, year which 
uh, got rid of Roe v. Wade. And so I, I think it's okay every now and then to take a, take a victory. <laughs> right. Well, e- e- even you, in the process. You, well, yeah. You, you, yeah. I agree that it was, I think more than anything, it was just such a mendacious and cynical move on the part of the Republicans because Absolutely. they had recently banned the, the idea of special <laughs> elections in August um, because of low turnout. And then they suddenly, once uh, the, uh, the uh, abortion rights issue got on the ballot for November, then they decided to right. do an end run around that by brushing this thing, thing through in August. Uh, hoping for a, a low turnout and get their people out, but the reverse happened. There was a, it was fifty-seven to forty-three against, and again, it, it may well be a harbinger for uh, for the twenty twenty-four elections in, in terms of a turnout against Republicans. Um, who well, I, yes, yes. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the the benefits of the um, of of these. We don't have to call it the direct democracy, but one of these initiatives or or referendum is that they get people used to voting. They get a, a more um, detailed explanation of what the issue is, you know, because it's just focused on this one issue. Now that is also a problem with the process of referendum generally, in that they don't take account of how this piece of legislation works in tandem or in opposition to any other thing that the legislature has going. So because it just takes one isolated, you know, one, it isolates one issue. Um, nonetheless, on the facts of this one, it seems to me that the, the voters said, we're sick of these shenanigans, basically. You know, you've tried to manipulate this in several respects. And we've been focusing on the... Um, on the, uh, the the change in the number of people of people who had to vote for it, you know, sixty percent up from fifty percent. That was one of the the changes. But another change was that you had to, the the people putting the referendum up had to have voter had to have people sign the the petition from no longer from forty counties but from eighty. And so we understand why you, they, you, you want to have a spread. You want to say all the votes can't come from one county, i.e., you know, a huge city or something right next to the dam that's going to burst. We, we've got to have, if, if we're passing legislation, it has to be more widely spread, the, the, the support for it. But to change that aspect of it from 40 to 88 is, was, you know, outrageous. It, it, it wouldn't. I think. I think a junior high school class would do pretty well in picking apart what seemed unfair about the various aspects of this particular referendum. So, so, and I think as far as the you know a harbinger for the for the for next year's elections, that's good. And I I only hope that there are more referendum before then because it emboldens people from other states when they see other conservative states um, say, you know, actually, we don't think you're a demon if you vote for abortion. It, ha- it has a great kind of opinion setting and, and it, it, it removes some of the, uh, the, the rhetoric that usually surrounds abortion. And we saw this in a couple of states. Uh, Mississippi was one of them where they were putting personhood amendments through. And in the abstract, people say, you know, of course, the fetus is a person until the 
anti-amendment people said, have you ever considered that if an abortion is a, is a, is a, if fetus is a person, you won't be able to use IVF in vitro fertilization because if you have extra, if you create extra embryos, you have to do something with them. And what most, most people do is dispose of the extra ones that they don't need anymore. And that would be murder. And, and so that, that became a, a quite an important aspect of voting down personhood because it was, uh, it was spreading the thought, spreading the idea of why people, you know, why women choose abortion. And I was just looking at, um, so go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned earlier that uh, there have been these abortion-related ballot initiatives that were, which have been won by abortion rights, the abortion rights side in Kansas and Kentucky. There's also been mm-hmm. uh, in Michigan, California, Montana, mm-hmm. and Vermont. And all, mm-hmm. in all states, abortion rights have won. And now I think it's in Arizona, isn't it? Isn't that the next one? Yes. They, they, well, they just introduced it yesterday. Right. And they said, we want one of those. <laughs> We're going to try it here. And that's another really conservative state. But th- that's, that's what I mean by the kind of knock-on effect, that, that we, we won't have to wait till the, the next, next November's election, which will be very important on this issue. But there can be lots of sort of ground setting and, and uh, n- now, between now and then. And it's, it's very exciting to think that, because so, one of the problems has been, uh, one of the questions that was at, has been asked a lot is, how come the, blue, the conservative states um, put so many restrictions on abortion, but if you look at the polls taken in, the, in those very states, the general polls have a much higher approval rate for abortion. Yes, we think abortion should be legal under certain circumstances. And so the question is, well, wh- how do you explain that, that sort of paradox? And the answer was the legislature, regretfully, is not representative of the of the, of all voters, and we see that by an issue you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is gerrymandering. We know that we don't have real representative democracy in states that are you know gerrymandered up the wazoo, and so uh, the idea that legislative voting is the is a purer form, a representative democracy is a purer form of of fairness and uh, rep- representing what people want isn't really true. So that's what these referenda do is they allow a kind of, they, they answer the question, how can it be that the legislature is so conservative and yet the, um, the citizens are not? Well, what was extraordinary about yesterday's vote in Ohio was that it clearly energized the, mm-hmm. uh, the no vote against issue yeah. one. Nearly twice as many people voted on the yeah. Ohio measure yesterday than cast ballots in primaries for the governor, the Senate and the House <laughs> and other major uh-huh. statewide races in last year's midterm. And we recall uh-huh. how important those races were because J.D. Vance, uh, funded by Peter That's Thiel, was right. on, the, on the ballot. Right. And, and, and yet 
uh, yesterday, twice as many people voted. And a recent uh, CNN uh, poll finds that 64% of adults disapprove of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. So, mm-hmm. again, this might well be the motivating force to get Democrats out to vote. And, and, and by the way, not just Democrats. These, clearly, with a purple state like Ohio, um, you're gonna, right. you have a lot of independents, Republicans and Libertarians voting against uh, that Republican power grab. Well, I think for a while I've been using the phrase, you know, Republicans, watch what you wish for, because it doesn't always come out. I mean, you've just, you know, laid out an example of how this is supposed to it energized the wrong people. And it it made them angry, actually, not just energized. Um, But people didn't want to be, you know, pushed around in this kind of tawdry way of, well, that didn't work. You know, it, 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 getting rid of uh, August elections didn't work. So we'll try something else. And it's like, leave us alone already. We just want to. We we're ready. To, we're ready to vote on this now, more ready right. than we were. So it okay. is. It is exciting. Yeah. Well, Carol Sanger, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia University Law School. She's also an award-winning teacher and influential scholar of reproductive rights who writes and teaches courses on contracts, family law, and the legal profession, and law and gender. And her most recent book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century, which addresses the regulation of abortion and maternal conduct, surrogacy, and the law's relation to culture. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring what genuine peace efforts can be taken to reverse deteriorating relations between the U.S. and China, unlike recent revelations in the New York Times that American peace groups like Code Pink appear to be shilling for the Chinese Communist Party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schell. Pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Orville. And I'm interested in in finding out what average citizens and American voters can do to stop the deterioration in U.S.-Chinese relations and what many see as a kind of collision course we're on towards war. Recently, of course, Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, one of the architects of the rapprochement with China, back in the Nixon administration, recently went to China and expressed similar concerns, as this former 
Ambassador Chas Freeman, who was uh, Nixon's translator. I mean, I, I wanted to bring this up in the context of the of what the New York Times just recently revealed in an article on August the 5th, a global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul, which sort of indicates that the uh, financing behind the so-called peace group here in the United States, Code Pink, they appear to be shilling for the Chinese Communist Party. So given that bad news, is there any good news on what can be done in a genuine peace effort? Well, I think it's fair to say that the relationship between the U.S. and China has really uh, collapsed into the lowest sort of uh, state of grace that it's been in for many decades. And um, I think, uh, you know, to try to figure out why that has happened, uh, one has to sort of look at both sides of the ledger, because after all, relations are always, if they're successful or functional, reciprocal. And I think, you know, the lion's share of the blame, uh, I would say, really derives from the fact that Xi Jinping is a very different kind of leader from those people who preceded him, particularly if you go back to Deng Xiaoping. And he is somebody for whom I think has always had a, a, a deep uh, sense of uh, the, the, the dangers of interacting with a democratic society, whether it's European, American, Australian, Canadian, because he saw that as a way of, uh, of sort of undermining uh, China's one-party Marxist-Leninist rule. And so that's meant that he's really been not an easy partner for Biden to kind of give a little, get a little, compromise, find an off-ramp, and get on some different footing. He has very thin skin, and he takes umbrage at slights and slurs. And, of course, there are many things that happen in China where the media abroad is going to criticize him, and that doesn't sit well with him. So I'd say, just by way of conclusion, this lack of reciprocity on the Chinese side and rather belligerent posture, which has manifested itself as wolf warrior diplomacy, has not made it easy for us to find some new angle of repose diplomatically. But the United States Congress, now controlled by Republicans, having these kind of kangaroo court hearings about weaponization of government, and they had one panel on the Chinese Communist Party and how to counter it. I mean, it, it, this wasn't sober statesmanship. This was, you know, rabid uh, paranoia and China bashing. Well, it is true that there's a good level of paranoia about China, and there's also a good good amount of China bashing. But I think the bitter reality is that this is uh, something that Xi Jinping and his new regime sort of posture in the world has brought down on itself. And this is why it's so difficult to actually uh, even find a constructive way to build a bridge with China if you want to. And many people do, because China is just not open in the way that it used to be during the reform area to kind of reciprocal efforts to, as I say, to give a little and get a little and collaborate and cooperate. And so we've even reached the state where the global marketplace, which once was very deeply integrated, is not talking about decoupling. And this is not something that only the Americans or the Europeans are doing. 
This is something that China is doing. It's returning to its old Maoist roots of autarky and self-reliance. So is that to say then that the Western and U.S. businessmen and corporations who invested heavily in China's economic miracle, were they taken for a ride? Or is this, be, is this just because this guy is, has completely, uh, Xi Jinping has completely deviated from the path set by Deng Xiaoping? I think, you know, engagement was a really good try. And it was, it, it was a kind of, a I think, American leadership, in a certain way, at its best, to try to work it out to try and allow reform to make China more convergent with the rest of the world, even though they weren't democratic and even though they were ruled by a communist party. Uh, and so as long as reform went on, engagement could have a logic and people on both sides could reciprocate and help each other and hope that China would sort of slowly, you know, vacate some of its old retrograde Leninist practices. But with Xi Jinping's uh, uh, you know, um, uh, ascendancy to the throne in 2012 and 13, things began radically to change. And so he is a very different kind of leader. I think, you know, he threw away the old Chinese slogan of peaceful rise and adopted wolf warrior diplomacy. And that was a very bitter pill for people like Henry Kissinger and, and Chaz Freeman to deal with. Because if you're going to be a wolf warrior diplomat, that's exactly the antithesis of what Kissinger is, is advocating. So I think that there's much uh, on the Chinese side that would need to change if we are to be uh, expectant of finding any kind of a new balance point and a new off-ramp. So what do you think Henry Kissinger said to Xi Jinping and what did he achieve? He's obviously concerned. He's very concerned, and I think he keeps hoping that the, we could have another moment, such as catalyzed in 1972 when U.S. and China get joined together against Russia. But that's not going to happen because Putin and Xi Jinping have declared a, you know, a, a, a relationship without limits. So I think Henry is a bit nostalgic at the age of 100. I don't think he knows where to go either. I think he sees it as very dangerous. But frankly speaking, I don't think it is something that America can repair by itself. It is a reciprocal relationship. It needs both sides to have buy-in if we're going to find some new way to, to, to stabilize the status quo. And I'm not so sure we're going to because I don't think Xi Jinping is really open for business on that front. And if he was, Henry Kissinger would have brought home the bacon. But he didn't. So what's going on then with Chinese peace efforts in, in brokering a, a rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia and then their attendance last weekend at the peace summit where Ukraine's 10-point peace plan was put forth and China seems to be interested in being a part of that process. They're going to meet again. Apparently the Russians are, are, are a little annoyed with China. Is, so if, if they're not interested in peace with the United States, are they interested in, in a global scale of solving problems like the Ukraine war? Well, I think Iran and, and Saudi Arabia were going to bury the hatchet and China came in and helped out. 
And I do think this new peace plan for the Ukraine, uh, China's peace plan had no legs. Ukraine would never accept it because, you know, it was a territorial sovereignty question. But what's been going on of late, I, I think, suggests that China is beginning to realize that Russia is not a great horse to bet on. And yet there is no other great power in China's sort of sphere of influence. So they can't just let them go. But I think China is trying to, in some good and hopeful ways to find a different way to, to, to be involved in the Russian invasion of the Ukraine rather than just saying nothing and proposing peace plans that would have no prospect of success. So we'll see where it goes. So one of the things that I find disturbing is that, you know, for the longest time, Hollywood and, you know, if you talk about soft power, you know, Hollywood films have uh, have been helpful and NBA sports stars, etc., in in projecting a kind of gentler face of the United States as opposed to its vast military machine that's right up against the Chinese borders and you have naval ships almost colliding, etc. So in terms of soft power, it seemed like there have been a period of time where Chinese movie theaters and moviegoers were watching American movies, mostly these kind of Marvel cartoon films, which I find ridiculous, but they're very popular. But lately, apparently the government is sort of taking over the movie business and they're putting out anti-American propaganda movies about the Korean War, etc. So is that really happening? Is there, is We know there's been a long indoctrination pro- process underway since Tiananmen Square where the ruling Communist Party discouraged democracy and encouraged nationalism and, and materialism, but are they also now encouraging a form of militarism and anti-Americanism, at least in their movies? Well, there are two very interesting books that have come out, one by Eric Schwartzell, a Wall Street Journal uh, writer, and another by a Chinese Ying Zhu. Both basically what happened in that regard is that uh, Hollywood went in with great expectations and actually did very well for a while, and big box office success. And China was learning how to make sort of big budget films of the kind that actually do sell. When they accomplished that, they gradually began to phase Hollywood out. So Hollywood films now have a very tough time in China. Instead, China started to, you know, very suspicious of foreign films anyway, because it's foreign influence. So they started making their own big budget films. And they they made one, for instance, that was very successful on the Changjin Lake uh, attacks of the People's Liberation Army and during the Korean War. Uh, and it was quite anti-foreign. So there has been a shift away uh, from Hollywood films towards indigenously made films that are much more patriotic, uh, much more pro-party, and and less uh, sort of redolent of Western influence, which Xi Jinping is, is quite suspicious of. China has developed a middle class in in a very rapid period of time. Now, the the economy is stagnating, and there's no question that Xi Jinping uh, made some boneheaded decisions vis-a-vis COVID. But is, is China still sending lots and lots of tourists abroad, which is certainly something that a, not a totalitarian country would not do? No, they haven't. Uh, I mean, the pandemic really put an end to that. I mean, there's it's 
there's starting to be a, 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 a trickle now beginning to go abroad and travel as all over the world. There's sort of there's a recrudescence of leisure travel. But I think the old uh, industry, which is quite massive, Chinese going to Europe and America and Australia, that's much diminished. And I think that's also sort of in uh, Xi Jinping's sort of uh, comfort zone to don't let too many people go abroad and get too distracted by foreign ideas and and you know let's let's sort of focus on ourselves and uh, I mean Xi Jinping is not a very cosmopolitan man and he does not feel comfortable with a lot of cosmopolitan influences which I think he fears if left to their own devices might severely undermine uh, his ideology and his sort of conception of a of a one-party state. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Shell, back to what the U.S. can do, and particularly the U.S. government. If Biden is finding it hard to repair things, he sent uh, Blinken over there recently after the balloon incident torpedoed things. We mentioned the hawks on in, uh, in the Congress, mostly Republicans, but also Democrats. They're not particularly helpful. What do you think would be helpful for, on the American side? Well, I think Biden is, to his credit, trying to keep the door open. He sent Blinken, he sent Janet Yellen from Treasury, Gina Raimondo from Commerce is going over. I mean, he really is, I think, trying to keep all diplomatic avenues uh, and channels open. Uh, but again, we got, come back to where we began. This must be a reciprocal process, and China must want to get along and give some things as we give some things and you compromise and you find a way that has not yet happened. It's possible that as the economic downturn in China bites, it may change his posture. But to date, uh, while we're, it's a little bit better than it was a few months ago, the U S China relationship is not in great state, but then nor is China's relation to India, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Norway, or Europe. And he'd like to uh, sort of hive Europe, Europe off and divide it from the United States. But that of course hasn't happened. NATO is stronger. NATO has an office in Japan. The alliance with Korea, Japan, and the Philippines is stronger than ever. So the world is dividing in a very frightening and dangerous way. And I think, um, you know, if I was Xi Jinping, I would take advantage of Biden's open door and try to work something out now before we have some accident in the South China Sea, some military maneuver in the Taiwan Straits, and things really come a cropper. But this is really up to Xi. The door is open. The question is, will he walk through it? Well, Oval Shell, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Orville Shell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and The Next Generation of China's Leaders and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century and most recently, My Old Home, A Novel of Exile. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Chinese government's global influence campaigns. If you could read my mind, love, 
What a tale my thoughts could tell Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And joining us now, Joshua Kulansik, who is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, who was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's currently focused on China's relations with Southeast Asia and China's approach to soft and sharp power, including state-backed media and information efforts and other components of soft and sharp power. He's also working on issues related to the rise of global populism, populism in Asia, and the impact of COVID-19 on illiberal populism and political freedom overall. And his latest book is Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Kalansik. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And how well is China doing in terms of its soft power? I could ask the same question about the United States, but uh, in terms of its ability to influence policy here in the United States and other countries, uh, particularly next door in Canada. Okay, well, you have to differentiate between two things. One thing is soft power, where you actually have high popularity in other countries by doing publicly facing things like in the United States, historically, it doesn't have to come from the government. In the United States, historically, that would be like Hollywood or the NBA. Soft power is sort of wooing other countries with the attractiveness of your ideas and culture and your economy and things like that and your diplomacy. And China's actually done a, your, your public diplomacy, China's actually done a very a terrible job at that. China's ratings, popularity ratings are really, really poor. So what you have to dip between is that, which they are not doing a job at, and what we call sharp power, which is the ability to wield often covert and corrosive, corrupt influence of politics, societies, think tanks, the general tenor of civil society in countries. That China is now doing extremely well. One recent example was that the New York Times published a piece about how China had infiltrated a series of liberal organizations, including a very prominent one called Code Pink, and it essentially had turned them via a wealthy person, but also via Chinese intelligence agents into sort of tools for Chinese propaganda. Another recently prominent example is that China has allegedly meddled quite directly in Canada's both local and federal elections by using Chinese media and other influence efforts to turn, to turn parts of the populace, particularly in areas where there are large numbers of Chinese speakers, against candidates who are 
critical of China. And then on a federal level, the allegation is that China played a significant role in covertly influencing a number of conservative party candidates. So that's the opposition party right now in Canada. And there's even allegations that China managed to place agents or operatives actually in the offices of some of the conservative politicians who ran for office in the last federal election as their as senior staff. Now, that what's happened in Canada is that the Trudeau government, which is not conservative, but the liberal government that's in power, has commissioned an exhaustive um, investigation into this. But the most recent results of that with Canada's intelligence service did say that China had intervened was was intervening directly in elections in in Canada. Well, but given the Citizens United decision in the United States, and we saw what happened in 2016 with Russian money coming in via oligarchs and even even laundering money through the NRA, wouldn't it be likely that Chinese money, Chinese businessmen who use, I mean, Putin uses oligarchs as cutouts. I imagine the Chinese intelligence service does the same thing with wealthy Chinese moguls, right? Right. Um, it's certainly possible. I mean, first of all, let's just step back in a second and say that most Chinese Americans are, you know, are in general, polls show have a very negative opinion of China and um, are not, are not, you know, involved in influence activities. But certainly the same thing, the possibility exists. The U.S. has tightened some of its foreign interference and influence laws since 2016, particularly laws. Uh, there's a, a a statute called FARA, which... Um, foreign uh, Registration uh, Act, yeah. Yeah, Registration Act, which was basically not um, enforced for decades and is now being much more stringently enforced. So people who would be... Um, promoting China or, or any other foreign country and not r- reporting it, they're actually looking much more stringently at it. But Citizens United is not necessarily the main issue. Um, that, but yes, it's certainly possible that you can't stop. Let's just step back again. You can't stop a Chinese-American person from giving a ton of money to some candidate. And indeed, there is a possibility that China could cultivate some of those. That certainly has happened in other countries. In Australia, there was a huge string of scandals in which Chinese, several big Chinese Australian tycoons were giving money directly to candidates um, as well as funding university, university think tanks and research institutions produce essentially pro-China material. Um, Australia responded with a very stringent foreign interference act about banning all, uh, much more stringent than what we have, banning all foreign money and politics and also very stringently looking at who donates to, you know, what universities and think tanks, which is something that we we don't really have right now in terms in the US like 
Congress has begun to look at who is donating mon- donating money, what foreign entities are donating money. It's not just China. Like you know, it, there would be concerns raised about uh, you know Saudi Arabia or Qatar or others making uh, authoritarian states making large donations to universities, but it's at a very nascent stage in the U.S. Um, in terms of how China or other foreign entities could manipulate via large donations discourse on college campuses and discourse in universities. There's other ways they do it too by um, threatening and manipulating the Chinese, ethnic Chinese populations at universities, both Chinese nationals and Chinese Americans, and have been created a real climate of self-censorship around China at a lot of universities in the U.S. and around the world. So what is the U.S. doing in terms of its soft power? I would think that the best card the U.S. has to play vis-a-vis the Chinese Communist government is to encourage democracy. I mean, ever since Tiananmen, the Chinese government have encouraged materialism and nationalism, and they've been very successful. And a lot of Chinese are understandably proud of the enormous uh, economic strides that the country has made. But there's still also a lot of Chinese who who want freedom, want freedom of speech. It's the most uh, surveilled country on the planet, uh, the most controlled country on the planet, um, and uh, I imagine a lot of people are chafing. And in fact, recently when there was a building caught on fire and because of the COVID lockdown, people were burned alive, there was an enormous um, outpouring of anger across China. and People were holding up a blank sheet of paper in defiance of the uh, censorship laws. Um, so is there any possibility that the U.S. could appeal to the yearning for freedom amongst the Chinese people? Well, first of all, just China's actually, after decades of truly impressive growth and development, is actually facing huge problems now, which is adding to discontent among the population. Their economy is not doing well. They've become more authoritarian. They have, they're having huge problems with debt and massive unemployment, particularly among younger people. There's actually a theory out there. Um, I can recommend a, a book by Professors Hal Brand and Michael Beckley suggesting that actually China is, at its, is declining. It's not actually, it's reached its peak of economic development and it's declining. They also have a massive demographic problem because of the one China policy where they're desperately short of workers. So there's a, there's a lot of simmering discontent in China over a whole wide range of of issues, but the U.S. has little ability to promote democracy in China, frankly. I mean, I think, first of all, under the Xi Jinping administration, which has become much more ideological and authoritarian than previous ones, they've thrown out virtually every Western organization thrown out most of the Western journalists, which is a problem because it's hard to get accurate information. Um, I don't, and, and um, Chinese organizations that would be taking money and be revealed to be taking money from the U.S. or other, you know, leading um, democracies, it wouldn't help them. They 
just be more easily tarred as, um, you know, sycophants of the West. Um, but I mean, the U.S. can counter China's influence efforts and soft power around the world in various ways. One, emphasizing how bad China's reputation is in so many places because of their belligerent public diplomacy and some of their quite aggressive military moves and their rising authoritarianism, et cetera. The U.S. can also strengthen its own soft power. So there's only so much you can do because most soft power, like I said, flows from the private sector. You know, it flows from like the appeal of LeBron James or, you know, of um, Tom Cruise or, you know, what, whatever, you know, uh, Taylor Swift, et cetera. But, um, the U.S. should continue to support its own government-funded um, soft power efforts like Voice of America and Radio Free Asia. When Trump was president, he tried to kill those because he wanted to instead turn them into a propaganda channel that basically promoted him. So those those need to be maintained. And certainly the U.S. and other major um, democratic countries should continue to support um organizations that that push for democracy in China that but they would a lot of them are outside China and they should continue to definitely should continue to support organizations that expose and combat Chinese influence so that includes independent media all over the world in the in the few places where Chinese influence has failed like Australia Taiwan it's often been independent media that uh, have exposed a lot of these um, problems. It should continue to support organizations that promote digital liter- literacy um, because digital literacy is critical to sort of people understanding Chinese and as well as other Russian, et cetera, disinformation online. They should continue to support, you know, pro-democracy groups in all sorts of countries where, there is a real contest between China and leading democracies over what whether that country is going to become, you know, an authoritarian state or not. And countries like that would be included in, in that mix would be like Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, uh, sure. Venezuela. There is a whole range of countries where China has poured money in and um, definitely prefers to work with an authoritarian government and um, is a real question about, and it is a global question actually about whether, you know, democracy has had its day and authoritarian rule is back. I mean, most of the people in the world now live in authoritarian countries, frankly. Well, just in closing, though, there is a real concern that the United States and China are on a collision course and a war... Um, over Taiwan, for example, would be catastrophic between two nuclear powers. So any sensible person would want to try and avoid that. And, and Henry Kissinger was uh, in recently meeting with uh, Xi Jinping. Um, Ambassador Chaz Freeman uh, also has been expressing concern about the uh, the hostility growing on both sides. Uh, so, you know, the the revelations in the New York Times about Chinese influence via uh, influencing American peace groups like Code Pink, they, of course, are are about peace. 
At least they say they are. But well, the New York Times is, it, it, it was suggesting that they're, they're really just a conduit for Chinese propaganda or indeed Russian propaganda since they do take a pro-Russian line on the uh, Ukraine war. So how about a real peace effort, not one that's covertly financed by Russia? by uh, China, and and what can people who are really concerned about uh, the two countries going to war, what can they do? Sure. Let me, sorry to be didactic, but let me just take one one thing more to your prior question, I forget, which I forgot to say, which is the most important thing. In order for the United States to promote democracy anywhere, the United States needs to be a stable functioning democracy and so if it is not then that that undermines democracy worldwide and undermines any ability to promote democracy and right now you know the united states own the democratic stability is at least in question i would say what can people do to promote um peace um definitely i mean i think Americans have gotten used to the idea that American, unfortunately, that American wars are wars that are fought over the last 20 years in um, faraway Middle Eastern or South Asian countries that fought by a volunteer force that most people don't have a relationship to and don't result in large numbers of American casualties. I, I mean, every casualty is bad, but although they have resulted in massive amounts of Iraqi and Afghan casualties. Um, one of the problems with the China-U.S.-Taiwan uh, thing is that there's very few people left in America who remember what it was like when major powers had a war with each other to remember, you know, the Second World War. And this would be like that. Not Iraq, not Afghanistan. You would have a situation in which millions of people would be killed in Taiwan in the Chinese forces and in the U.S. forces within a few days, you would probably have a draft and the potential for nuclear escalation. And Americans, just, there's no one who remembers that. Maybe, maybe people remember the draft. I mean, I think um, the what can ordinary people do is they can, um, you know, I mean, they can elect representatives who are not, who are less hawkish about, um, just sort of moving blindly into this uh, potential conflict. Um, they can make it known um, um, publicly, you know, to um, through the various channels that we have. They can make it an issue in the presidential race. Um, but, but there's another side, too, and, I, you know, there's nothing Americans can do about that. You know, I mean, if Xi Jinping has decided that um, they want to invade Taiwan, there's really not much Americans can do about that. And, in fact, there's, there's some theory, like I mentioned before, that China has actually reached its peak and it's having problems that says that that, that, that actually makes China more dangerous in that, if they're not going to continue to grow at huge numbers, the Chinese Communist Party needs another source of legitimacy. And a, like with Putin, a war is 
a source of legitimacy. But on the American side, yeah, I mean, question representatives who push it. Congress is very much, is much more hawkish on China, actually, than the Biden administration even. Um, you know, think about it as an, a major issue. I mean, and think about it as an issue that we raised in the presidential campaign. And just don't blindly ignore the fact that you know, this is probably the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous moments, this combined with Ukraine, you know, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, Joshua Kondansky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Kalancic, who is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, who was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's currently focused on China's relations with Southeast Asia and China's approach to soft and sharp power, including state-backed media and information efforts and other components of soft and sharp power. He's also working on issues related to the rise of global populism, populism in Asia, and the impact of COVID-19 on illiberal populism. And his latest book is Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.